welcome. This is the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast. My name is Christian. I'm heading the company building unit of Porsche Digital. Hi, my name is Tim and I'm the co-founder and co-curator of the House of Beautiful Business. So we have this beautiful podcast to bring together two very interesting thought leaders. Um, Tim, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, we are actually at the House of Beautiful Business and um, it's a place, our think tank and global community that we have created to connect thought leaders, practitioners from various fields, the arts, science, business, nonprofit, policymaking. And once a year, we bring them all together in Lisbon at the House of Beautiful Business, which is where we are right now. And we want them to engage in conversations on visions for a more humane future of business technology and society. And one of the design principles of the house is serendipity. So not knowing exactly whom you're going to meet. Mm -hmm. And that's also the design of these podcast conversations. Because imagine you are at the house and then you walk into a room, you don't know whom you're going to meet there. You know their name, you may have read their biography or their short bio at least, but there's no preparation. They've never met before. Mm -hmm. And there's also a very important detail, somewhat terrifying to some. There's no moderator. <laughs> and like case. people are just left with their own devices and they are just meeting each other for the first time and uh, having a conversation. That's actually what we're looking for is really get inspired by next visions of two inspiring, beautiful minds. So can you explain to me who are these beautiful minds? So in this next conversation that we're going to listen to, we have John Havens and Florian Schmidt. John Havens, I mm -hmm. think, should be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with Porsche's future, I believe, because he heads up IEEE's. IEEE is the world's largest professional organization. It's the mm -hmm. professional organization of electrical engineers and software yep. engineers. And they have launched an initiative called Global Initiative on Ethics of Autonomous and Intelligent Systems. So mm -hmm. essentially AI and automation and Internet of Things, which of course has a lot to do with Porsche's future. Yeah, I think we, of course, will look into this future technologies. Maybe we're not the front runner in autonomous driving because we still believe in the steering wheel and the emotions of driving. But anyhow, uh, of course, we'll look deep into this future technologies. And John is in conversation with Florian Schmidt. Florian Schmidt is a creative director. He has held various positions in creative agencies, digital agencies. Uh, he's now founded his own company, A Certain Everything. And John, by the way, I've known for many, many years. So he wrote several books. He's also, by the way, a fantastic harmonica player. And <laughs> okay. uh, we won't, I'm not sure we will hear this on this podcast. Well, who knows? Well, we'll <laughs> Let's and, see. And, and Florian has been here at the house actually working with some of the residents on their talks. We had one little experiment going where people could just sign up to give talks at the end of the house. So he mm -hmm. has coached them. And he is now also a co-founder of a really interesting initiative, which is called Nature 2.0. And he'll tell us more about it in the conversation. Sounds very interesting. So listen to it. John. Florian. <laughs> hey, where are we? Uh, we're in a beautiful library-looking space. It's kind mm. of Baroque in Lisbon. And what conference are we at? We are at the House of Beautiful Business. And, you know, it is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, the house is beautiful. I think this is the Brazil room because oh. it's uh, it's called Sala da Brasil. Oh, you said that much better than I could have said. I probably that. still said it wrong. <laughs> but behind you, you'll see the uh, birds of the bird life of Brazil. There's two volumes actually behind you. And it does have, which won't read, of course, in the podcast, but the smell. I love this, like, smell oh, I know. of, like, old paper. Yeah, that doesn't translate. And, like, varnish. Vodka. I know, you know, it's beautiful. It's an awesome smell. Yeah. 
we are at the Academy of Sciences in Lisbon, right? It's, I it's do feel an smarter. awesome place. Can't believe they actually let us in here. <laughs> <laughs> so I've read your I read your bio, and you had a really sort of colorful history, haven't you? I mean, you've done a lot of different things. Where did it all start? I went to New York to be an actor in 1992. Wow. So I was a professional actor, did Broadway TV and film for about 15 years. Wow. That also got me into writing like scripts, which led me to technology writing. So I've written for Guardian and The Mashable, and then I've written three books. And then I uh, did some PR work as an EVP of a top 10 PR firm. So I got to kind of know the business world. Mm. I left there when my, my father passed away. He was a psychiatrist that got me into positive psychology. And I ran a nonprofit for a couple of years, focused on the intersection of technology and well-being. And then I was at South by Southwest, invited by this organization called IEEE, talking about my last book called Artificial Intelligence about AI ethics. And I went to them and said, can we build something like this together? And thankfully they said yes. Mm. And that's where I am now. That's a really interesting topic. I'm sure we'll sort of come back to that because I've done both some work, but you know, not as a psychologist or, but with positive psychology and sort of also looked at ethics. Probably that's why they put us together. <laughs> oh, and the ethical. There's a plan. Excellent. All right. Well, how about you? You have a. I, I, I've sort of had. I've had sort of a few different lives as well. I mean, I, I started off also in '92. Actually, I started studying industrial design with a view of actually becoming an automotive designer because that's what I decided when I was eight, I was going to be. <laughs> and, you know, I don't give up on my dreams. I don't know, I really quickly realized that that wasn't for me. I don't know, I just felt that I would probably be designing rearview mirrors for the first 20 years of my career. Mm. And I wanted to do the entire thing, obviously. <laughs> so I sort of stepped sideways and started designing spaceships and started doing a lot of CGI and then sort of stumbled into becoming a director mainly for commercials and music videos. And I'd always been a musician as well. And my partner at the time just uh, got me to send a demo tape away. And I ended up being signed to a label in London. I was living in Germany at the time. And, you know, before I knew it, I was on tour for like a good two years and moved to London to make my second album. That was 20 years ago. It's still not finished. <laughs> but I got sidetracked. I got into... Uh, interactive as well and did a lot of experimental stuff and then that got picked up by obviously people who thought that would make good marketing um mm -hmm. so we did a lot of stuff for film actually that was sort of probably the good first good three years of our career we're just doing film promotion looking at non-linear narrative and you know ran that until about 2008 sold it then stayed with it for a bit longer and then so start working in an agency group as a CCO. But the beauty, and this is where it sort of comes together, was that um, we had a consumer psychologist that was employed part-time, or still employed part-time, who you, you might even have heard of him. He runs a site called Digital Wellbeing, mm. Dr. Paul Marsden. Yeah, I and, that name. Yeah, and so I, I got to work with him, and he really got me into positive psychology. And, you know, we were exploring concepts of happiness and, you know, how do we create happiness for people in people's lives? Um, we're looking at, you know, things like positive nudges and, you know, obviously three good things, you know, all these peak and rule, you know, all these different things, which was really interesting because it was something that we were exploring as a way to reframe our work and rather than sort of selling stuff to people, 
that maybe they can't afford and don't need to impress people they don't like. You know, <laughs> we sort of thought, how about we focus on actually creating happiness in people's lives? And that I thought like positive psychology to me, I mean, it's obviously very ubiquitous now, but I thought that to me seemed like the key to a lot of things. How did you get into positive psychology? Mm, a lot of it was because of grief. Uh, when my hmm. dad died, he was a psychiatrist of the Freudian and Jungian traditions. And I wish he had been alive to know what positive psychology was. Mm. He passed in 2011. And it just made a ton of sense. I think I first read, like a lot of people, um, Seligman's um, Thrive is, uh, was yeah, was he Thrive? Seligman's, anyway, Martin Seligman, a lot of people mm-hmm. consider one of the sort of fathers of positive psychology. And reading about his work on gratitude mm. with a number of patients, I think it was like 20 patients who were clinically depressed, not just like, you know, sad. And the nurses were asked to tell the patients at the end of every day just to write down five things that they were grateful for. And the nurses reported that within days, their behavior and demeanor changed. And these were people, some having, you know, medications. Mm. And the power of telling someone wherever you are in your life right now, you have something that you're grateful for mm-hmm. is very, you know, I'm from the States, right? And you're still based in London or you're- I'm based in London, yes. Yeah. And I've lived in London for a little while, but I know in the States and I'm 50. So being raised in the era that I was raised in, most of the messages either overt, like a movie like Wall Street with greed is mm-hmm. good, or the kind of underlying premise, like at every party you go to is how much money do you make, right? Mm-hmm. There's sort of this comparison, mm-hmm. right? Or if you're not making money, like with you as an artist is a great example, like that's awesome. You went on tour. That's freaking awesome, Mm -hmm. right? But the artist who hasn't had that yet Mm. won't necessarily be deemed a success. And I'm not trying to say that if they're not trying to do the work, but the point is, is that there's this message that until you get over there to that point, Mm -hmm. you don't have worth. Mm -hmm. And also because of my faith, I went to college actually thinking I was going to be a minister in a Christian tradition where my belief is when you're born, you have worth. And that if possible, live a life where you can help others feel that they have worth Mm -hmm. by putting them before you. Mm -hmm. Then that message really resonated with me because ingratitude is also a sense of rather than clamoring for what you don't have and I deserve this and all that, which Mm -hmm. is very human and natural. You say, but here's who and what I have now. And how can I use what I have to help others? Hmm. So uh, really it was my dad and I miss him. He was such a loving, caring psychiatrist. Yeah, Amazing. I think for me it was the same, you know, just looking at positive psychology and, and everything that comes with it. And also, you know, sort of looking at it in the context of happiness. I don't know if you've read The Happiness Hypothesis. Is that, that's, I was, Jonathan, that's not Sean Acor, right? Jonathan Hyde. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. H-A-I-D-T, right? Yes. yes. I mean, he's amazing. And, you know, it was it's probably one of the first books where, you know, that whole idea was summed up just beautifully and from all different angles. And, you know, faith is one element of it. Uh, to be honest, MDMA is another one. You know, you, that works as well, or Prozac, or, you know, there's lots of different ways towards happiness, or CBT, you know. But he really looked at it from all different angles. And I, I, I think what we sort of also extracted from it was this idea of self-actualization. We sort of termed it the arc of happiness. So it's autonomy, relatedness, and competence. If you sort of achieve these, obviously that gives a feeling of happiness. It's a great acronym, by the way. Mm, yeah. We used it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's, I mean, the funny thing is that then, however, you know, you sort of, 
when you use it in, in, for example, in marketing, it becomes very difficult. I mean, clients kind of like buy into it, but they don't see the next step. Like to us, it was always just apply ideally all three of them in everything that you do and the products you develop and the way that you speak about them and the way you make people feel. Customer service is like a good example, you know, if you can give people the idea of relatedness, you know, that's really powerful. But there was always sort of a, there was like one bit missing for clients to really buy into it. And it's funny as well that, especially in Germany, it didn't really work because there is no good translation for happiness, mm. which I thought was tragic and hilarious at the same time. Yeah. Like, I don't know German, but it feels like there should be some word of... Yeah, something. but, you know, there's Glück, but, you know, Glück is also luck. It's very, um, for us, it was always really sort of difficult to sort of... So, like, because if you said, like, all the other kind of words, which you would know, of course, like, well-being and flourishing, mm. would those be synonyms of, like... You know, expediency or efficiency, which is sort of the opposite sometimes of positive psychology. Like that's really interesting to me. How did you work with your German clients or colleagues to say, here's well-being and flourishing? Hmm. And how would that then be? I think the way that we broke it down is that really as a, let's say as an agency, for example, as working in advertising, marketing, whatever, you know, I'm sure it applies to PR as well, is that it really only works if you have content and happy employees that make their clients really happy with work that makes the client's customers really happy. This was kind of like the trinity that we always talked about. If you want to have positive impact in people's lives, and you know, it's statistically proven that, you know, the brands with the happiest customers are, you know, two and a half times more successful than other brands. It makes complete sense. So, you know, why not focus on that and build your messaging and your product around it? And, you know, you always get a lot of nodding heads and then it sort of all breaks down because there's politics and everything. So, you know, it's, I think as a, for us as a, as a vehicle, it made a lot of sense, but it's really difficult to connect with clients on that. Although to me, it's still, I'm still flabbergasted why it doesn't sort of connect like that. Well, do you think, because I think it's probably the struggle, um, you know, it's boring kind of almost, but money, you know, like I, I talk about this all the time, exponential growth, right? Mm -hmm. Having worked with great clients, world brands, mm. uh, really good value. They deliver, products were amazing, good people, good intentions. Mm. But I talk about this a lot. I've been talking about a lot here at the House of Beautiful Business, which is every quarter, mm. if you're in an organization with shareholder growth, is the single bottom line. Yeah. Then all the awesome stuff that you are doing and did that I, it's the same, we share that same passion, right? Mm. To increase well-being. Well-being goes beyond a single bottom line mentality. Absolutely. And I think that's still the biggest challenge where it's such a joy when you see like a B Corp, you know, in the States mm. where B Corp has a legal structure so that things can change. And then so many of the positive psychology ideology, at least from, in my experience, can take more fruit. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, Does, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I agree. Definitely sort of thinking in three-month cycles does not help to establish a long-term vision. But then again, you know, like you see a lot of people that bring Patagonia to the table and go, you know, we want to be more like Patagonia. And it's like, well, then you need to stop thinking about your bottom line every three months. You know, then you need to have a longer view on, on how you achieve something like that. Patagonia, it's funny you mentioned them. I was at a conference not too long ago and a senior guy from Patagonia spoke. I'm pretty sure it was them, not like Timberland, it was Patagonia. Their retention rate or like the number of how many employees have left, mm -hmm. uh, that's not retention, it's the opposite 
uh, mm-hmm. I forget the term, uh, is 1%. Wow. <laughs> Apparently like that over is... 40 years, they lost like one or you know, two employees <laughs> and it's because they moved, but it's because they do everything. They have like daycare on site, uh-huh. all the medical care, all that type of stuff, but all these things where they treat their employees like gold, mm-hmm. all the stuff that we love, well-being and all that stuff. And I'm like that. And he's like, this is a metric that's is important to us. Yeah. They had to move, so we weren't mad. Right. <laughs> but he's like, they weren't leaving because- but you know, there you have, you have a whole system that actually almost completely goes against consumerism because it's built on longevity. You know, don't buy this jacket, get it fixed, you know? And you can have that forever. I was just talking about Remoa, you know, the suitcase manufacturer. You just send it back, you got it fixed and you've got almost a new suitcase, but still carries all the memories that you have with it. You know, it's, I think it's a much more beautiful concept. I'm really interested in your work on ethics in AI, and I know you don't use the term AI, right? Mm. Why, why is that? Uh, a couple of reasons. One is it's like saying the internet. It's so broad. Artificial intelligence can encompass machine learning, inverse reinforcement learning, deep learning, AGI. So for one thing, it's just hard. If you're in a room and you actually want to talk about like with practitioners, usually they just very quickly say, we're doing machine learning. Mm. The other is that, at least in the States, the media has tend to always have either very utopian or dystopian aspects around those two words. Mm -hmm. So it's always either going to save the world or Terminator robots will kill us. (laughs) So we're doing some work with um, MIT Media Lab around something called extended intelligence, which is their term. A bunch of awesome thinkers like Mm. from the House of Lords and all these people, which is based a lot on... um, Joey Ito's and other people's work on this idea of reductionism. That if we think that humans are really only made up of the neurons in our brain or Mm -hmm. just our information, and you would know this as a musician and an artist, Mm. right? The ephemera that passes between two humans with something like music, Mm. right? I haven't copied your brain. Mm. (laughs) Now, granted, I, I understand like, you know, in your cortex or whatever, we're reacting to whatever, but things like the smell in this room, right? Mm -hmm. We're imagining the smell or is the smell actually here, Mm. right? And then things like nature, right? Even if we were to say, well, our consciousness, we can copy it or whatever. Mm. It completely ignores the idea that there is a symbiosis with the water we have to put in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And especially indigenous cultures around the world, this is a lot of their work and thinking is something the extended intelligence work is something I'm really excited about because being a Westerner, it's only in the last couple of years that I've been able to even sort of grok or understand what it means to move beyond duality, meaning either or, which is binary. Mm -hmm. But Twain Lu, who just spoke, has a wonderful talk where she says, look, binary code was invented by essentially the Greeks with Aristotle, Mm -hmm. right? Zero and one was a construct that's Western in nature. And then she talks about Confucius, came 3,000 years before. And it's one in between, right, that kind of makes us humans. Mm -hmm. So anyway, without going on for another long time. The ethics part of it for us is not as much about morality, right? It's not saying this person is doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. It's about applied ethics where you're asking more questions mm-hmm. than one may. And, you know, with your work in marketing and, and well-being, asking questions that move beyond, say, money to a person's life. Or if you're building a product, what are the end user values? Mm-hmm. And you can't just have demographics alone. You have to, you know, here's a crazy idea, like participant design, is to ask them directly and work with them. Mm-hmm. And then what that means is before you actually even build a prototype, you're asking all these tough questions, but you're now making the product 
more useful to the end users, but there's more innovation as well as avoiding unintended negative consequences. Mm-hmm. It's again, I, I harp on this, but the single bottom line, get to market fast. We have to be competitive, move fast and break things. Mm. More and more with AI means we break people. I agree. I mean, we did some research into also how people feel about AI. We did a reasonably big study in the UK, the US and Germany with sort of a sample size of about 2,000 each. And we sort of did things like trolley problem, you know, we just said, you know, okay, this is the trolley problem. And now imagine an AI is sort of there, you know, like draw a little robot and what's the right thing to do. What I thought was interesting when we were talking about autonomous cars and autonomous driving, that we sort of constructed this idea of, you know, cars sort of like out of control, getting to a pedestrian crossing with five children on it. And there's a cliff on one side, should the car with one passenger sort of go over the cliff and save the five children? Or, you know, should he plow into the children and save the driver? Mm-hmm. And quite overwhelmingly, people said, no, no, of course you have to save the five children. You know, absolutely. But then the follow-up question was, would you drive in such a car? And three quarters of the people said, no, probably not. It's, um, you know, sort of also, you know, we're talking about, you know, simple things like chatbots. You know, I think a lot of times you're not exactly sure anymore if you're talking to a chatbot or if you're talking to a real person. Should there be sort of a code of conduct, whereas you kind of like have a trust mark that says you are not speaking to AI and people overwhelmingly said they want what we then call the Blade Runner law, where, you know, there needs to be something that tells you now I'm speaking to AI now I'm speaking to a human. Have oh, you come that. across, have you come across these? Oh, uh, that is like the coolest name ever, man. <laughs> I want, I want, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the work at IEEE, uh, which is the, just the world's biggest engineering organization, it was founded about 100 years ago. Uh, their tagline is advancing technology for humanity. They have almost half a million members, so they're very big. Oh, wow. And a lot of the work we're doing is to create standards and certifications with marks, to your point. Mm. Where at the end of the day, a lot of times, it's not this you know, complex, philosophical, like the nature of who I am. It's like I'm bringing home a robot into my house. Mm-hmm. Does it have a sticker on it that says it's safe for my kids, right? right. Meaning sometimes consumers just need that. And if they have a question, they can go to a website. Mm-hmm. It's a visible marker of due diligence, really, exactly, yeah. for trust. But if you uh, have not you know, copyrighted the Blade Runner thing, man, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to steal it. No, go but for it. Go that for would it. be I mean, unethical yeah. and ironic, but that's an <laughs> awesome, awesome name. And uh, that's exactly what a lot of we're trying to do. Explainability, transparency, accountability. There are you know, a lot more in-depth things like GDPR and all that stuff. But really course, what it yeah. just means is, do you trust that this thing in your home or this thing in your car mm. is going to keep you safe? And then if there's any confusion about how the manufacturers are telling you, mm. that is opportunity for distrust or a positive note, trust. Mm. And our message is the stuff we're doing here, if you can in any way not have to prioritize, get stuff to the market, which I mean is very American maybe, mm. you know, and competition, which mm. competition is something like, it's, I get it. It's really hard if you're in a company to not worry about your competitors, right? Absolutely. But it wasn't an ideology that was like birthed with the Big Bang, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it mm-hmm. was created like in 1776, kind of. The time Adam Smith came out with Wealth of Nations, mm-hmm. colonization first really started with the UK and the East India Dutch Company, and America, of course, the Declaration of Independence. There are these ideologies that sort of deemed early on that we have to compete with each other. We must compete. Mm-hmm. And then especially with the GDP that says exponential growth is what means you're worth something. Well, I have more than you, Florian, mm-hmm. so I'm better. 
then I have to compete with you. I don't want to compete with you. Hmm. You're a really cool dude. We had a great ride in the Porsche yesterday. And you're a brilliant musician and have all these talents. So it doesn't mean that it's easy to, and this is where people say, well, are you a socialist? And these are words (laughs) that we have to move beyond. And this is where well-being is something that we share. I love so much because it's like, it's not about happiness, right? I lost my dad. It was one of the most intense times of grief I've ever faced. Walking through that Mm. with yourself and with other humans. Mm. And tech can help. But I think for me, a big risk is, are we going to supplant or delegate everything Mm. or the potential for everything to not be human to human? Mm. That's the risk we're trying to, by the way, I wouldn't dictate that for you or for anyone else, right? For sure. None of us is saying, if you say, well, for me and my family, we like this, right? That's not the point. But to give you that safe disclosure with those marks, right? You don't have to look at the marks, <laughs> but they've but got to there. be there so yeah. you can have information. So uh, hmm, where do you stand on simulation theory then? Oh, are we in a simulation in a simulation? Or is that Max Tegmark? I forget who that is. That's I, 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 I mean, it blew up when Elon Musk sort of said there's... Uh, there's a one in a billion chance we're not in a simulation. For me, I'm going through a pretty tough personal thing right now. So mm. if I'm in a simulation, I would welcome a switch to get the <laughs> hell out of it. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, and I understand that everyone has nightmares and stuff. Um, I think for me, like the, 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 the positive psychology and loving others, sort of the base of who I am, or try to be at least, kindness. Mm. If that's a simulation I can try to generate as much as possible, that's... Mm. That's my goal. How about you? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's interesting because the way I sort of came about it was that my daughter used to love to play Sims, mm. the computer game. Um, and then one day um, she showed me that there's actually, you can get the Sims to play Sims. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Oh, that's like and an I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> so I was like, okay. At the time, I think she was 11 or 12. And I was thinking, is she old enough to sort of <laughs> be awesome. hit with a big concept like simulation theory? But I thought, nah, expose her. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so I sort of explained it to her. And I said, there is a good chance that just like you're making the Sims play Sims, someone's playing us, you know, because she's always like, oh, why is she standing on the bed the whole time? You know, I didn't tell her to do that. We're sometimes irrational as well. And I, I said, you know, maybe there's like some five-year-old that's taken over our simulation because the parents are gone and he just pressed some of the wrong buttons and flips on the wrong switches. And, you know, we just got to get through that until an adult comes along and <laughs> resets the simulation, you know. I heard a really fun story about Sims, by the way, which is uh, this woman uh, felt her mom, I guess her mom became obsessed with Sims mm. and she played it so much. And I think she was like 19 at the time or something. And she really needed her mom. Like, I guess her mom was struggling, or, but she'd be like, mom, uh, it's a great game. I need you to be with me. I need you to be. Mm. And for whatever reason, the mom just wouldn't <laughs> mm. do it. So uh, I'm laughing because then what the daughter did is the, the mom went to get groceries or something. And she went in and she killed all of the Sims characters that she had been curating for you know, months and months. Oh, yes, right? I think I know that story. So, so, so like an NPR or something. Apparently the mom came back and just flipped out. Now from an artist, you know, a, you know, creators, like part of me is like, that's not cool to go in and that's a lot of work and emotion. And But the other part of me is like, as a mom, if your kid is saying, I need you and you're, yes. you're whatever. So it, it kind of was also funny because I'm like, she didn't kill people and you know and well, she reset i mean you know they might think they're people yeah. you know that's fair enough fair but, enough you know let's let's assume not you know so but either way i thought it was an interesting and I, that's so cool i didn't know that the sims could play the sims that's, i know it's, it's insane i mean you know of course 
Yeah. If you can, why not? You know, yeah. but it, it just sort of, it really sort of hit me. She took it really well though, the whole simulation thing. Because I said, you know, nothing changes, you know, like this is still, I still love you. You love me, you know, like you can still touch things and we still perceive it as real, you know, maybe it's not, but it doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. I want to run one thing past you, a thing that I'm working on. So I started an initiative with a few other people and a lot of them work in the blockchain sphere and we call it Sovereign Nature. And the idea is to actually um, develop and produce and support technologies that can support Nature 2.0. I don't know if you're familiar with the term Nature 2.0, but it's basically um, things like self-owning forests, you know, Mm -hmm. where you sort of say, okay, you've got a forest. Its destiny at some point is to be cut down because whoever owns it wants to cut down the trees, sell the trees, then sell the land and then retire with the money. And, you know, that's not what nature is supposed to do. So the idea is to, you know, how can we find ways to sort of give a sense of sovereignty back to nature by using technologies like blockchain and AI and smart contracts. So, you know, AI to allow them to act as autonomous agents and obviously blockchain and smart contracts to sort of deal with everything else. When I read that you are part of IEEE, I sort of first confused it with IET, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with. Yeah, I forget. Um, it's the Institute of Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Yes, yes, i.e., yeah. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, they promote uh, personhood for animals. and yeah, It's somewhat transhuman oriented, I think. It is, yes. So, you know, and I think for me, there's always kind of like also a crossover with this concept of object-oriented ontology. You know, we're not the pinnacle of creation. We need to sort of see this all as an ecosystem. Um, but I'm, I'm just... I just love the conversations that arise around it when we sort of explain this. And the whole thing is run as a DAO, so there's no central governing body. Um, everyone's sort of equal shareholder. Projects are proposed and voted on. If they're greenlit, then they get financed. Mm. And we, we've got a few projects on the go now that are really, really interesting. Um, but, you know, it's a very nascent thing. But, you know, the conversation that always comes up is sort of how we're still making the decisions for the forest. We're setting up the DAO. We're setting up the smart contracts. We're sort of at least in some way instructing the AI. Because, you know, the concept is based on the idea of taking human greed out of the equation and just let nature be. Mm. Does that, um, I don't know, does it make sense to you? Yeah, I think it's lovely. Uh, There's so many things about it I really like. Um, I mean, first of all, where we are with the climate, right? Meaning nature in general, not just conservation, but restoration is a priority, right? So frankly, any project, well, I should say, to your point, that's not about greed somehow reversed. Like, we're going to grow more trees for greed, you know? Like, But like, if you're restoring or honoring, you know, nature's natural stuff, then mm. A, I'm already happy, right? Mm. And then blockchain and all that stuff. We have a lot of our standards. Um, he's Doc Searles fan, you know, very mm. focused on smart contracts. His book, The Intention Economy, uh, I still think is one mm-hmm. of the most seminal reads for marketers oh, wow. to understand how signals are reversed oh, with consumerism. And so if you are able to share your data or the trees are able to share their data it, through blockchain or smart contracts, mm-hmm. it reverses CRM. And anyway, so Doc is brilliant. Interesting. So that whole ecosystem I've been in for a while. Um, and then what was interesting with our work, we, um, we got critiqued because we have a big paper called Ethically Aligned Design. Mm-hmm. And with my work and well-being, I was able to recommend to all the different people working. I was like, can we give a subtitle to our work that's, you know, not just 
hey, we're here. Because like the front end of ethics for us, right, is safe, responsible AI design that mm-hmm. honors end users. But a big message for us is also, but what's the end goal, mm. right? You know, to not kill people or hurt people, sure. But what is the end goal of the AI? Is it to increase shareholder growth mm-hmm. only? Because then how is that going to change the status quo? Anything that's still AI for good mm. is going to be AI for good Defined only with whatever. Mm. So the subtitle for the paper, which we want to update, but it's still ethically aligned design, prioritizing autonomous and intelligent, I'm sorry, prioritizing human well-being for autonomous and intelligent systems. Mm. Thank you. But what happened is a different MIT paper uh, written by three really fantastic indigenous authors critiqued that subtitle and said it's anthropocentric, which is fair. Um, And so now I've talked to one of the authors, uh, Jason, and we want him to come into our committees and say, we need the language and we mm. need this beautiful stuff. Mm. The challenging thing, which I, I still want to talk to him more to see what he would recommend, symbiosis with nature, right? Meaning mm. it's not just I'm human and the nature is mm. outside, right? Mm. Symbiosis is killer. Donella Meadows, you know, systems thinking, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The human part of it that's still challenging, and you would know all this with blockchain and stuff, mm. is that there's in the same way that the environment and the climate is not protected, right? Humans in terms of human rights around data and stuff is not protected as we're tracked. Mm. So what I, I'd love to find out from Jason and others, yourself, if you have a thought on this, is you know we want to change the title to be something like prioritizing human well-being and symbiosis with ecological sustainability. That's right. a mouthful. But if we can get the word smithing, the point is, is to say this is success, right? It's uh, The money stuff is always going to work out, right? People, mm. you have to get paid to pay your bills and all that. But like, what if every piece of technology we built, part of the metrics of success, KPI in business world, right, was you had to have a third of your efforts restore the planet. Mm-hmm. And then like your your project would be one of the best things to right. have people. And it's, but it's not just philanthropy, right? It's not just companies going, well, that sounds good. I'm going to donate. It's, no, this is how we make the world work because right now it's broken and needs right. healing. Does that make sense? I mean, the, 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 I guess what I didn't sort of expand on earlier is that there's still a sort of commercial aspect in what we talk about and not that we want to make, no one's making money off that when it comes to us. But the idea is that, you know, obviously the forest can still cut down trees, probably has to, you know, to allow new ones to plant new ones. And obviously that will generate revenue. But the idea is, you know, what do you do with that revenue? Okay, you can, you know, buy more trees or you could contribute to universal basic income. The same goes for, we've got another project with plants that sort of use something that's very complicated and I don't, frankly, don't quite understand, but, you know, it sort of extracts energy from the roots. And at the moment, it's more like an art installation. A lot of it is sort of an art space at the moment. But it produces, they produce enough energy to charge a mobile phone, which I love because it brings it back to something that everyone goes like, oh, who can charge a mobile phone? Great. But likewise, it could sell that energy or, you know, it could use it to sort of give power to a streetlight. And yes, solar can do that as well, but usually plants are more. Yeah, if it's not they, fossil fuels, right? It's, exactly. it's restoring, you know, and trees naturally, right? Our forest, you know, naturally forest fires, at least in the States, I know you mm. know. When forest fires happen naturally, then that's a way of paring down the mm. flotsam, as it were, of the trees, exactly, right? Yeah. But then the seeds come down and it's just that the humans come in and mm. take and take and take, you know? I, like, to me, it's a fascinating, we're trying to make it real, but it's also a fascinating thought project. And we're doing a little bit of design fiction at the moment just to sort of see 
let's play this through. What happens? We've got a self-owning forest, but we also have self-owning rivers and we've got self-owning bees, you know, how do these interact? Mm. And I think there is the fear that we just take the capitalist system that we know and we just kind of like put it on that and they'll have to work it out between them. But if self-preservation is at the forefront of everything, then the scarcity and then, you know, what happens then? So, do, you know, do, you think, do you think that's true though, that self-preservation? I mean, a lot of the symbiosis of nature is the bees are interacting with exactly, the Exactly, yeah. But, you know, like I'm just saying, like all of these things then need to be programmed at the point where you sort of, I mean, you know, the best thing is nature 1.0, which is, let's just get rid of us and nature. <laughs> you know, the planet is fine, you know. <laughs> right. We're in trouble. I don't know. I, I sort of, I read just on maybe last one on the topic of AI, I started reading an article the other day which was that there's obviously the dystopia of, you know, we're outsourcing so much to AI already, small things from autonomous driving to God knows what. Obviously there is the fear that at some point AI is just going to take over and just it's going to realize that the one thing that actually causes trouble is us. How that is going to end up, I have no idea. Maybe there will be Terminator and killer robots. But then there was this idea that, oh, maybe that's just the future of humanity. After all, we sort of created it. You know, maybe that's just how it's meant to be. You know, maybe. I, I, I uh, no, 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 no. I mean, look, I don't I'm, necessarily I'm, agree. I just n- thought it no, was, no, no. I, I'm responding because it's a really good provocative thing. But you know, as a fellow dad, right? I could tell mm-hmm. when we uh, rode in the Porsche yesterday, like mm-hmm. you know, the way you talk about your kids, right? It's like, ah, this is a good dad. Mm-hmm. You know, you tell stories about your kids. You have specifics about your kids. They are part of you. Right? Oh, absolutely. And this is where, for me, it's just very real where it's like, if there's an inevitability to something like consciousness being uploaded, which I personally don't believe that's mm. A, going to happen and, or certainly been inevitable. Mm. If someone else believes it, it's not my place to judge their subjective truth and say, mm. you know, you're less than. In the same way, I don't think it's fair sometimes where an empiricist might say, anyone who believes in any God, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or whatever, you know, you're full of crap because mm. it's, generated from your, And I'm like, I don't like to play that your faith is, is wrong and mine is okay. Correct. When yours is just veiled in empiricism, that's not cool. Like mm. that's called arrogance, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You have a faith, mm-hmm. meaning depending on the context. Anyway, for me, because we're so close to things like real, really major climate stuff happening in mm-hmm. the next 50 years, like and the books that I read, you know, the UN reports and the data, it's not like the world's going to blow up in 50 years. But what you read is that within 10 or 15 or 20 years, the climate crises that are already happening and 7 million people, according to the World Health Organization last year, died just from pollution, right? Mm-hmm. That that is increasing. And then this is even before Greta Thunberg saying, we will never forgive you, right? This is now. Mm. This is, I'm, I'm 50, right? We're about the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. 48, yeah. I don't want my kids to look at me and say, why weren't you doing something? And I also don't think a kid right now is going to say, they might say, oh, wow, that's really cool. I get VR. You know, your daughter's obviously brilliant Mm. and doing all this awesome Mm. stuff with Sims. The concept of uploading, it's interesting to discuss. Mm. For me, what I come back to is what does that pragmatic thing look like? Mm. So in 10 years from now, our kids or someone else's kids walk into a room and to me, it, it is pretty binary. There's a couple of things that happen. One is, hey, listen, we're getting to the point with the climate where if to save humans or it's the next evolution or how, framing it, right? I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to make it negative. This uploading can happen. Mm-hmm. The pragmatist, the American in me, because most people don't have health insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Says, 
I don't think that process is going to be cheap. I don't see the uploading thing being like it's $12.99. It's going to be the rich probably only. And then what that means is the other answer is they walk in the room and they say, listen, it turns out that the natural evolution of humans is uploading, but I know, do you have $200,000? The answer is no. What happens next? Mm -hmm. This is not Terminators. This is not robots killing us. This is a very select few, the 6% and all that, deeming through techno-utopianism. And I love technology, but this, the tagline for IEEE is advancing technology for humanity. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be anthropocentric. Humanity is, for me, again, the symbiosis right. of our, our mother nature and us, right? Mm-hmm. But these visions, which I support the, the faith-oriented aspect of it or people wanting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so anyway, a long answer to your question, no. <laughs> it's not an answer. It's not the natural evolution because natural would mean something like no, I agree. a forest does whatever. It is not natural what we're doing to the climate or to no. each other. No, no, no. So I don't, I never want to have a conversation where, and this is a great question. Thank you so much. Mm. Where people would think like, oh, natural, it's not natural. It's not natural at all. Mm. If the majority of the planet is dying or suffering mm. And then a few select people who can afford the thing, by the way, right? Here's the thing that we can do, mm. maybe. Hoping, fingers crossed. Mm. Nothing natural about that at all. Mm. There's a great um, Australian author. He's like half author, half maths professor called Greg Egan. He wrote a book, Permutation City, that is pretty much about that. And it's about oh, rich cool. people sort of like uploading themselves and then all kinds of madness ensues over the next few million years because Mm. everything runs really slow so everything takes forever but you know it's um i just you know i just like these sort of thinking about these things and doing a little bit of crazy utopian dystopian fiction in my head i mean thanks thanks so much for the conversation oh my pleasure man real pleasure to get to know you yeah i had really low energy coming into this and you (laughs) completely restored my energy i'm ready to go for the rest of the day thank you thank you thank you Okay, did we say in the introduction that John might be playing the harmonica? Did he? He did not. It was a typical case of a cliffhanger (laughs) that led nowhere. Totally disappointed. (laughs) I I feel like I betrayed the audience. So um, there's probably some videos on YouTube of John Havens playing the harmonica. He did so at the house. But anyway, it was a fascinating conversation, even without harmonica. (laughs) Absolutely. And is harmonica even the right word? I I don't even know. Anyway, that's the... Yeah, Loose, yeah. I, I think we get it, um, but still the disappointment is in the room. Um, yeah, what resonated most with me, um, I like this thought about this late runner rules because it's an interesting question. And I guess when you are in AI robotics, there's this famous Turing test to really define what artificial intelligence is. And it's basically the logic if a human doesn't perceive that he's talking to a robot. I find that somehow strange. So, for example, there's this uh, movie Ex Machina where exactly this is executed. So I always wonder because it is the assumption that we are intelligent somehow. And I think it's very individual somehow. And still, I I wonder if this is really intelligent for me. So that was most impressive for me now. It's a very Western view, isn't it? And the fact that or this idea that AI must be human-centered in order to be benevolent and helpful. And I think there's now also some some thinkers who are saying 
that AI should not necessarily be human-centered. It shouldn't be AI-centered either, but it should be, we should treat it with respect and we should look to, for example, Shinto in Japan or, mm -hmm. you know, Asian cultures where people assume that every living object or thing has a soul, has spirit, rather than just assuming it's only humans, right? And um, I know you get me because uh, you don't know that I'm half Japanese. So looking into that, for example, the highest state of Zen is to actually think nothing. And intelligence is mostly defined as that you think all the time. So I wonder what happens in that kind of, and it's the same, I guess, with Indian religions, reaching a higher state is uh, really the highest state is to think nothing. And like I explained also, it's not only the brain, it's also heart and gut. So how do you take this kind of things into consideration when you make decisions with AI? So that is what came to my mind when this discussion came up with this Blade Runner thing. What else? Well, I mean, on that note, I thought it was really interesting what Florian was sharing on Nature 2.0, because that is actually That's an initiative right? that delegates power back to nature and saying, well, let's remove the human from the equation, at least as a controlling force. And then blockchain basically have self-governed forests. And because they were also talking about shareholder value and post-growth capitalism, I think what is also interesting is that this idea of self-governed organizations is now also arriving at the workplace, right? There are these models like the Purpose Foundation, for example, in Berlin or other participatory mm -hmm. platform cooperatives where organizations belong to itself. So they, mm -hmm. they don't have shareholders anymore, investors. They're owned by itself, not even the people working for it, but by itself. Mm -hmm. And then there's an asset lock. Um, and it's a, it's a completely different way to think about businesses and what we consider or how we, we create value and how we govern Companies, I, fascinating. You know, not that I'm an expert, but I just am very intrigued by this idea of this purpose-driven approach. You mean? Yeah, at this, these self-governed and self-owned forests, nature, but also organizations, human. Yeah, this nature thing was interesting because I think at this time you do a lot of things like 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. For me, it sounded more like that's the original thing of nature, right? And now we are coining this 2.0 that nature belongs to itself somehow. I guess the very essence and learning of the podcast now, the ep this episode is we are pretty much focused on ourselves, And I think really creating a next vision also requires to put your ego aside and think a little bit more open-minded. And like you mentioned, being driven by a purpose in the end, right? That is what everyone drives somehow. Yeah, and that's a conversation that you're having at, at Porsche as well, right? Uh, um, like many to, other companies. In no, I think, uh, yeah, that's, I guess, a general question is always like, what is the purpose? What's the fundamental reason for being in this world? This is like a little child asking the parents, why am I existing? So um, we answered this question and basically it's, I think for a customer, very obvious then for us was a journey to really discover that is really that we create dreams. So we realized Beside all the technical stuff, engineering and the perfection, in the end, we create a dream for people. And that is the mission we pursue is really to create a dream for people out there. Let it be a car, let it be something different. But that is really what touches the people at their, at their heart and create value for them. The challenge, of course, is like once the dream gets fulfilled, it's no longer a dream. Yeah, when it gets fulfilled. I think the beautiful <laughs> thing about dreams somehow is that you sometimes never reach them. And of course, you can have many dreams. 
So I think it's what a wonderful conversation of the two of the guys. So looking forward to the next episode. Yeah, if you want to uh, listen to more episodes of the Porsche at House of Beautiful Business podcast conversations, then you can just find them where you found this one on those, you know, 5,000 platforms that we're distributing <laughs> them on. And also, yeah, please comment and share your thoughts on that because Next Visions is all about discussion, different perspectives and getting input as well from different perspectives. Christian, that was beautiful. Thank you very much. 